David, one of those two camps. And even though the superscription doesn't tell us specifically which of the two it is, I think when we get into the, to the meat of the psalm, we're going to find that there's actually some, some indications there as to what it might be that uh, is, is the core experience that's driving him to write this song. This is a song written by a guy who has a broken heart. And, and I mean, how many songs get written for that reason, even in our world today? And I, I think back even in, in my own life, uh, when Jimmy Ruffin did What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, Who Had Love That's Now Departed, I know I've got to find some kind of peace of mind, help me. Or the BJ's, BG's saying, what, how do you mend a broken heart? How can a loser ever win? Please help me mend my broken heart and let me live again. What those two songs have in common is that both of them are about a broken heart and both of them are a cry for help. Both are a cry for help. And this is a song from a broken heart that's also a cry for help. Only instead of singing to the four winds, like Jimmy Ruffin and like the Bee Gees, David is singing directly to God, the source of our help. He's going to the one who is actually able to provide help. But as we saw last week, one of the problems with a song of lament is because in the season of lament, sometimes it doesn't feel like God's doing anything. And it can make the time and the, the season of struggle and suffering, and in this case, heartache, very, very burdensome and very, very hard. So, so let's see what David does with his broken heart today. How do you mend a broken heart? David thinks you mend a broken, broken heart by taking it to God. And we'll find out how he discovers this. Now, if it was a normal person who was speaking to you this morning, a normal person speaking on Psalm 55 would do the normal thing and start with verse 1. But since normal and I very seldom collide in the same sentence, we're going to start in verse 4, just because I like verse 4, because it sets the stage for us. It sets the stage for us as to the condition of David's heart. And as we look at verses 4 and 5, there are two things I want you to keep in mind. The first thing that I want you to keep in mind is notice how intense the words are. Notice how intense the words are. This is not just a casual moment. This is not just one of those, well, things aren't so hot, but it could be worse. No, this is David maybe at his absolutely lowest ebb. This is David in the darkest season of his life. And we see that framed in by the intense nature of the words that he chooses. The second thing I want you to see, not only in verses 4 and 5, although it is there, but also throughout Psalm 55, is that David's experience anticipates Christ's experience in the Passion. Now, everything David's writing about is him and what he's going through at that moment. And he doesn't know that he's anticipating the suffering and the broken heart of Christ, but he is. And we'll see parallels between what David writes and what happens during Jesus' passion experience because it's connected together in the one big story of the Bible of God sending his son to rescue his lost creation. So let's start looking at verses 4 and 5. And again, listen for starters to the intensity of these words. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. Notice, again, anguish, terrors, 
fear and trembling, horror, the, the sum total of all of those things piling on him at the same time is that he is absolutely overwhelmed. He is being suffocated by this experience. It's to the point where he can't think, he, he can't move, he can't breathe. He is completely undone by what's going on. He is overwhelmed by the pain and the struggle of this. And, and we have to see this kind of emotional intensity reflected in Christ as well because he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Because when he came, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Because when he came, he was tested in everything the same way we are, yet he never sinned. Jesus is the perfect responder to all of the trials and pain and struggle and difficulty that we will ever experience in this life. We don't always respond properly, and we'll see David have some struggles with his response. Jesus always responded properly to the most intense human emotions imaginable. Notice verses 4 and 5 again. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Verse 4. In Matthew 26, verse 38, when Jesus and his disciples the night before the cross enter the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus lives, leaves eight of the disciples at the gate. He takes Peter, James, and John further with him into the garden. And in verse 38, he says to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. Jesus' words are echoes of David's words. My heart is in anguish within me. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. The terrors of death have fallen upon me, even to the point of death. The common experience of heartache and loss and grief and pain and struggle is a, is a struggle that not only David knew, but also David's greater son knew it as well. Jesus experienced it as well. And, and we know the triggers for Jesus' experience because he was in the process of taking upon himself the sins of the world. But in David's experience, in this first part of the psalm, we see two distinct triggers that, that also that also lead to this response. Notice it says, if you back up a little bit to verse 3, and, and I use the, the NAS, it says, because of the voice of the enemy. I think the NIV might say because of the noise of the enemy. Um, voice is better for two reasons. One, because it's better, and two, because that's the way I want to preach it, so it, it helps me out uh, a little bit. Um, because of the voice of the enemy. Now, the reality is when we think about the voice of an enemy crying out against you, that's not unexpected, is it? I mean, that shouldn't be a surprise, right? That's what enemies do. You don't expect hearts and flowers from enemies. What you expect from enemies is attack and assault, and sometimes that attack and assault takes a verbal form. And that's exactly what David is talking about here. His enemies are attacking him verbally trying to diminish him, trying to destroy him, trying to ruin him, trying to misrepresent him. All of these different things flow into this voice of the enemy. And that's not unexpected. What, anticip what intensifies the experience is not that it's surprising. What intensifies the experience is if you jump back to verses 1 and 2, the voice of the enemy is compounded by the silence of God. 
Here in verses 1 and 2, we get David's parallel to what we saw last week in Psalm 13, where four times in the first two verses he said, How long? How long? How long? How long? How long am I going to keep crying out to you, Lord, and you aren't listening to me? How long will I lift my prayers to a silent heaven? Here he's echoing that with different words. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not hide yourself from my supplication. Listen to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint, and I'm surely distracted. All of those things that he's experiencing from the voice of the enemy that trigger an anguished heart and deathly terror and fear and trembling and overwhelming horror, all of those things are magnified by what seems to be God's apparent disinterest. So how do you respond to that, David? How do you respond to those moments when life is overwhelming? At this moment, and and I think it's good for us to, to let David be human because most of the time when David is taught and preached and read and written about, he is idealized. And he was not an ideal person. Man, he had more mistakes and problems and mess ups and all that kind of stuff than you can imagine. Some of them are recorded for us, and they're huge. So it's good to be reminded that David is a human person and that he enters life the same way we do, with flaws and failings and heart and hurt. And here, we see some of that in David's very human response. Psychologists tell us that wired into every human being, kind of as a hardwiring in our DNA is, is what they refer to as the fight or flight mechanism. The fight or flight mechanism. And the fight or flight mechanism means when you face resistance, when you face threat, when you face danger, when you face a challenge, sometimes your reaction is to dig in your feet and get ready to fight back. Sometimes that's your reaction. Sometimes your reaction is to run away. Flight. Fight or flight. Fight or flight. You've probably, like me, laughed at the Southwest Airline commercials where somebody will do something really bonehead at the worst possible time and the worst possible moment in the absolutely wrong place. They'll say or do something completely humiliating and embarrassing. And as soon as they do that, the narrator voices over the commercial these words, want to get away? Yeah. <laughs> It's very funny until you're living that moment. Then it's not quite so funny. David's living that moment where his instinct, here's how bad it is. Here's how bad it is. His instinct is to run away. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away and lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. All I want to do is escape. And this is the measure of how intense these emotions are when we remember who David is. David's a fighter. David's a warrior. David was a warrior in an era in human history where there weren't drone strikes and when there weren't smart bombs and when there weren't all these kind of war from long distance kind of things. This is a moment in history where 
fighting and combat was intimate and personal and bloody. And David has shed so much blood in his life as a warrior that once he does become king and he wants to build a temple for God in Jerusalem, God says, no, you're a bloody man. You're a bloody man. David is a warrior. But this moment, this moment is so overwhelming that he can't even think about standing and fighting. All he can think about is running away. All he can think about is looking for a safe place. All he can think about is looking for something different, something else. And so we run away. Instead of fight, we choose flight. And we run away, maybe into an extramarital relationship. Or maybe our flight takes us into alcoholism. Or maybe our flight takes us to a different location or a different country. Anything, just anything different is better. It has to be better. It must be better. And the the problem with flight, the problem with flight is when we fly away like that dove, we take our biggest problem with us. As Pogo said in the comic strip so many years ago, we have met the enemy and he are us. When we try to flee from our problems, we can't flee from our problems because our problems are rooted in ourselves. And yet David's heart is so broken, his mind is so overwhelmed, that when pressed with the option between fight and flight, the great, mighty, courageous warrior chooses to run away. Now this is the first half of the psalm. And it's filled with despair. But in a sense, it gets worse before it gets better. There's some imprecatory stuff there. We're going to jump down to verse 12. Because now we see a second trigger for his emotional distress. And with that second trigger will come a second response, which I would strongly suggest to you is a much healthier response, okay? David is in this thing. And having considered the voice of the enemy, having considered the treatment of the enemy, having considered the anger of the enemy and the voice of the enemy, now he comes to what hurts even more. Because the hatred of an enemy is to be expected, but betrayal by a friend is one of the worst human experiences we can ever have. Betrayal by a friend. Verse 12, he says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. This signals us that he's talking about a different thing now. Earlier, he says, it's the voice of the enemy. Now he says, this is not an enemy. Now we're talking about something different. Now we're talking about something worse, something infinitely worse, something painfully worse. It is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Why? Because that's normal. That's what enemies do. They reproach you. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal my companion, my familiar friend, 
we who had sweet fellowship together and walked in the house of God in the throng. Once again, David's words anticipate Jesus' words. Also in the Garden of Gethsemane, 12 verses later from 2638 in Matthew 26, verse 50, when G Judas comes to betray Jesus, when Judas comes to lead the mob that's going to take Jesus and begin the physical sufferings of his passion. Judas is walking up. Jesus does not look at him and say, you dirty dog. How dare you? The first word out of Jesus' mouth to Judas in Matthew 26, verse 50 is friend. 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 Michael Card wrote a song about that moment called Why. Why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? And why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. As bad as the voice of the enemy, as bad as the relentless attack, as bad as all of that is, what is so, so, so much worse is betrayal by a friend. Jesus experienced it with Judas. Here, we may have the hint as to when this is taking place. And if so, it's not taking place during the time of Saul's pursuit because during that season of life, David's best friend was Jonathan. And Jonathan never was unfaithful to his friendship with David. He never turned on David. He never betrayed David. Here, it seems that it's a different situation. It's a later in life situation. It's when he's being pursued and run out of the kingdom by his own son, Absalom. And as the, the, the conspiracy grows, David's best friend and most trusted advisor and wisest counselor, Ahithophel, turns on David. And joins the conspiracy. It is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my best friend. Anyone who's ever been betrayed knows that that cuts a scar in your heart that never fully heals. Because from that moment on, it's hard to trust. It's hard to trust. You can learn how to trust again. The, the scar tissue can develop. It can grow. It can, it can, it can help. But there's going to always be a part of you that's going to hold back just a little bit because it's so hard to trust once you've been betrayed. It is uber damaging. Not just to that relationship, but to your ability and or willingness to enter into relationship. Because nothing cuts so deeply as the knife in the back from a friend, which caused Julius Caesar to say, et tu brute, even you, my companion, my good friend. 
I think David has good reason for being in despair. But whereas the voice of the enemy wanted to drive him to the wilderness in flight, the betrayal by a friend is so intense that he has no place to go but to his God. He has no place to turn. If he's going to run, it cannot be running from, it must be running to. And so he runs to his God in verse 16. As for me, I will call upon God and the Lord will save me. Now notice that's anticipation. That's anticipation. The saving isn't happening yet. The rescue isn't happening yet. Again, go back to verse 1, and you're reminded of the fact that he's still waiting for God to answer his prayers. The rescue isn't coming yet. But with this much pain, only God can heal the heart. And so he turns to God. Verse 17, evening and morning and noon, I will complain and murmur. He will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. Peace. God will hear and answer. Even the one who sits enthroned from old. Here is the trust element. Here is the trust component that David needs. When his human relationships are violated and he doesn't know who he can trust, he turns to the one he can always trust. He turns to the one who he can trust with his pain and with his broken heart and with his suffering and sorrow. He turns to his God to be his strength and help in this time and then David does something really unusual and, and it's not unique it's not it's the only time it ever happens but it's not normal normally a song of lament is is, is a, a piece that is absolutely and totally and singularly sung to God like last week how long oh Lord and everything else that follows is a is a prayer that is being sung it's a prayer that is being sung. Here, he starts off, give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not hide yourself. And everything that follows is a prayer that is sung until he gets to verse 22. And in verse 22, it's almost like for the first time in the psalm, he lowers his eyes. And he realizes that we're sitting there listening to him sing. And when he lowers his eyes and he sees us there, all of a sudden he decides he needs to say something to us. Up until this time, he's been talking to God. And now he wants to say something to us. And it's almost like he's saying, let me tell you what my pain has taught me. Let me tell you what I've learned through the darkest moments of my life. Let me tell you what I've learned. Cast your burden upon the Lord. He will sustain you. He will sustain you. Enemies may attack. Friends may betray. He will sustain you. He will sustain you. Cast 
your burden upon the Lord. The New Testament echoes that with casting all your care on him, knowing he cares for you. He cares for you. You say, well, it sure doesn't feel like it right now. No. But the moment of experience doesn't change an eternity of reality. He cares for you. The hymn writer said, all your anxiety, all your care, bring to the mercy seat, leave it there. Never a burden he cannot bear. Never a friend like Jesus. A friend who will never leave you or forsake you. A friend who will never betray you. A friend who will never be worthy, less, anything less than absolutely worthy of your trust. This is who he is. And this is why David says, when I wanted to run away, I was being foolish. But when I turned to my God, even though the circumstances remained, there was peace. In the midst of that storm, peace, because he sustained me. We live in a generation that wants simple, quick solutions to extremely complex problems. And life just don't work like that. Complex problems take time. They take patience. They take grace. They take God. That's what they take. So cast your burden upon the Lord. He will sustain you. And you will find in trusting him the peace that you would never find by running away. Because in that peace, you are reminded that living in this world is a life of day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment dependence upon him and his mercy and his grace. The songwriter prayed as they sang, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Father, as we come into your presence in prayer, acknowledging that we live in your presence every moment of every day, deliver us from those moments of self-reliance when we foolishly think that we're enough. And remind us of the lessons learned through struggle that it is in the season of our deepest hurt that we find your great strength. We need you. Every single hour, every single moment, every single second, every single heartbeat, we need you. Bless us now, our Savior. We come to you in Jesus' name.